0: Hello everyone and welcome back to NATO's Road to Madrid, the CSIS podcast where we're breaking down NATO's agenda before its summit in Madrid at the end of June, now in just two weeks away. I'm Pierre Marcos, and I am a visiting fellow with the Europe, Russia and Eurasia program at CSIS. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has focused NATO on its core mission of collective defense in the Euro-Atlantic area. However, as we have seen in a previous episode on the Indo-Pacific, allies should not overlook the security dynamics in other regions in the so-called global south. The war in Ukraine has demonstrated that a regional crisis can have global implications. In this episode, which was recorded on the week of June 6th, Luis and I have interviewed separately two great experts to explore the security challenges of two specific regions, Africa and Latin America. Among other topics, we discussed the roles and strategies of Russia and China there, and what role NATO and its members can play in those regions. My interview on in Africa with Elie Tenenbaum, Director of the Security Studies Center at the French Institute of International Relations, or IFRI, is first. After, you will hear Louis Simon discuss Latin America with Dr. Robert Evan Ellis, a Research Professor at the U.S. Army War College, Senior Non-Resident Associate at CSIS. We hope you enjoy the discussion. So, uh, welcome to this new episode of NATO's Road to Madrid. Today, we are very fortunate to have Ellie with us to discuss the security dynamics in the so-called uh, NATO's southern neighbourhood, and specifically in Africa. Uh, this is clearly a continent which is. Uh, under the radar, uh, given the current war uh, in Ukraine, but remains uh, critical for uh, transatlantic security. So we are very pleased to have Edith uh, Ennembom with us uh, today to, to discuss uh, the dynamics uh, there. So Ellie, let's let's start maybe with your assessment of the security situation in Africa and especially especially. In, in the Sahel, um, uh, have decades of international engagement, notably in, on the security front, helped uh, stabilize the, the, the region? And what is notably the nature of the terrorist threat today uh, in that region?
1: Okay. Uh, hello, everyone. Thank you, Pierre and Colin, for having me on this podcast. And yes, it's uh, absolutely true. Uh, the African uh, security issues uh, have been sort of overshadowed quite understandingly, especially in NATO uh, arena, by the, the, the situation in, um, in in the East. But actually, they're quite related on, on, on different aspects, but one of them being uh, the, the, the growing importance of street competition and especially Russian uh, meddling in uh, internal security in these countries uh, for uh, quite a few years, but but which took a, a very dramatic turn by the end of 2021 and, uh, and early 2022. To come back to, to your question about the, the assessment of uh, the jihadi threat, terrorist jihadi threat, which has been uh, understood as the main threat uh, to uh, sub-Saharan Africa, especially West Africa uh, in the in the recent years. It may not be the only one but we'll, we, we may come back to that later. Um, this uh, this threat has uh, been uh, continuously growing ever since let's uh, start with the 2012. Uh, war in uh, Northern Mali uh, when uh, it uh, for the first time uh, it appeared that uh, the jihadi uh, terrorist organization took over uh, a big chunk of territory. It was actually before. ISIS even came in uh, and, uh, and, and cut this, uh, uh, this big part of uh, Syrian and Iraqi territory in 2014. Uh, so, so it was actually kind of a first. French intervention at the time, uh, at the request of the Malian interim government and with a UN security resolution, was uh, pretty swift, uh, January 2013. Originally, France didn't want to be uh, to be the, the the first responder in this crisis, but it uh, uh, took up arms at a moment where uh, it seemed that the, the, that that the situation was really too critical. And from this uh, initial intervention, they 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 started to uh, try to build uh, a coalition coalition of African countries, but also a coalition of international and especially NATO partners, uh, not within the NATO framework. And I think it's worth mentioning that, but working with NATO member states uh, very closely on a bilateral basis uh, and also uh, on a, some sort of ad hoc uh, minilateral or, 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 or small multilateral basis uh, building uh, task forces such as the, the task force to Cuba, uh, which came uh, into being uh, in, in, in 2019. Uh, The the threats, uh, in spite of these attempts to try to mitigate it, fortunately expanded uh, continuously through a mix of increasing their capabilities and also really diving into the grievances of the population towards an uh, able or unwilling uh, government or, or local governance uh, that, was, that was failing in, their basic, uh, in fulfilling the basic needs of the population. Uh, and I think this is what you see uh, in the central Sahel, Region, but you definitely can expand that in explaining the resilience of uh, the Al shahab organization, Al Shabaab organization in in Somalia, or even um, ISIS uh, in Central Africa expansion more more recently since 2018 in uh, in Democratic Republic of Congo and in northern uh, Mozambique. So yeah, I mean, the, the, the basic line is that we, we have a, a jihadi thread that is expanding. We could then discuss probably the relationship of this jihadi landscape with the international jihadi uh movement i mean is there's been a lot of scholarship discussing these links uh, we're not going to go into this rabbit hole now because we don't have time uh but let's say that the the movement the jihadi is mostly a grassroots movement uh, with international connections that can be discussed over
0: thank you uh ellie and and you mentioned uh, in your first remarks that Russia was taking advantage of, of, these, uh, of these developments. Uh, could you expand on it and notably explain to us uh, the role of the Wagner Group, uh, which has managed to uh, implement in, uh, in, in Mali and, and clearly has complicated uh, the international uh, presence uh, there?
1: Sure. Well, the, the situation uh, that you, you have to take into account is that we, this, this is not a, a single actor or even a, a, a bilateral kind of uh, engagement that we're looking at. Not not only the jihadis on one side and and the states and NATO support uh, to the African states on the other. Uh, the situation is much more of that of a triangle, uh, one in which... You have external powers, such as France and uh, key partners uh, from the West, which are trying to uh, help uh, African uh, countries to cope with the jihadi threats. Uh, But they are also uh, engaging with governments that may uh, uh, fear, and this is not easy to put it that way, but this is really after years of research, the, the, the way I feel it, uh, a number of local actors, governments, uh, uh, and I don't want you to support to, 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 to names here, will probably feel more threatened by the, the reforms that are being uh, supported by uh, France and, and other Western countries in order to get uh, counterterrorism more efficient than by the terrorists themselves. So we started to have a divergence of views, and it's especially true between France and Mali after uh, 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 the two uh, consequent uh, coups uh, that uh, toppled the, the, the legitimate power in 2020 and then uh, again uh, in 2021. And, and France's criticism for these coups have really uh, tensed the, the, the relationship between uh, between it and, and the local government, and uh, especially that, that that of Mali. And when uh, Russia comes into the picture, is actually that they are providing a strategic offer that is very different from the, the Western-style uh, strategic offer because it's non-conditioned on any internal political commitments. Uh, They don't care if it's an elected or legitimate government uh, uh, that is in power. And quite interestingly, they're not actually that interested in fighting terrorism as well, uh, neither. They're actually providing regime security, exactly what France in its postcolonial era from 1960 to 1990 was doing and that France is no longer willing to do over the last 30 years and increasingly less and less uh, now. And, and obviously for the same reasons, uh, neither are the, the, the European partners that France is sticking with it in Africa. And so what uh, the Wagner Group is offering right now is this new form of uh, regime security, non-conditional uh, in terms of uh, internal policies uh, but which is not so much interested in fighting the jihadis uh, than just you know, making inroads uh, and driving wedges between local uh, national governments, African governments, and their traditional partners from the West. And therefore, basically reducing Western influence, uh, making progress in their own influence, and making some money on the side. Because, of course, Wagner Group, which never uh, forget, is also a mercenary group and is there for profit.
0: And and what about China's presence in the region, and notably military presence? We have seen China building uh, military infrastructures in in Djibouti, so in Eastern Africa. Could we expect a similar dynamic in in Western Africa coming from, from China?
1: As we know, I mean, people have been... You know, studying uh, Chinese presence on the African continent, especially Sub-Saharan and Africa, uh, for a long time now uh, has been, and it remains to this day, mostly uh, an economic, commercial investment presence massively is, is uh, absolutely not as militarized as Russian presence, for instance. Uh, I would say that the the, the, the the trade versus military ratio for uh, the, the Chinese presence is 90 to 10 is probably the way around for Russia in the, in the overall in sub-Saharan Africa. It's true that Eastern Africa has started uh, to 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 increase the military dimension Mentioned was this opening of the the, the PLA initially logistics bases uh, in, in in Djibouti, and they, they obviously has been uh, a growing concern to see some some. Sort of equivalent on the the western the Atlantic shores of uh, of Africa and um, and Africom the the U S uh, African Command has been especially pointing at um, Equatorial Guinea possibly uh, uh, a candidate uh, to um, to to hosting such uh, uh, such facilities. I I don't see that coming like in the in the, the immediate. Month after the Madrid summit or anything like that, but this is definitely something growing. Uh, China has to protect its sea lines of communications and and is trying to to increase its political influence. And this definitely comes with a package package of aid uh, package of uh, funding uh, loans of course and and it's been quite quite clear. of course uh, it, everything related to infrastructure building but uh, also, with military equipment and defense industry exports policy, very aggressive one. Uh, with Chinese sort of flooding the market uh, in countries like Nigeria or even Cameroon with a number of equipment, uh, military equipment that are actually quite competitive, obviously compared to to, to Western made ones. And and of course, at some point, this this may come uh, as well with military cooperation. The military cooperation. Is, Ch- on the Chinese side, is is still uh, kind of a low key. It's mostly under the form of military higher education grants. African officers going to 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 China to study, you know, uh, the the war colleges and so on. Uh, but uh, but they're increasing their um, footprint uh, quite 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 clearly. Even though it's, it's actually low pace than one may think, you know, just by waving at this uh, idea that uh, China is, uh, is coming uh, in Africa, in the military side as well.
0: Thank you, Eli. Uh, now let's turn maybe to what should be, what could be uh, the response of the transatlantic community to these security challenges uh, and, and specifically NATO. Uh, you have written with Mark Eker a, a fantastic book about uh, the lessons learned from 20 years of, of international fight against terrorism. What are these Lessons learned uh, and how the transatlantic community should adapt its response uh, to these security challenges in, in the Sahel. I mean,
1: it's obviously a great question, uh, and, uh, and and it shouldn't come in, in terms of of too much of a of a mantra of, uh, or even uh something uh, you know that 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 comes uh, all together. And it's probably a case by case approach that that needs to to be taken. But but overall, uh, I think first uh the counterterrorism lens shouldn't probably be the only prism through which we'll look at african problems has been too much that way over the last 20 years ever since 911 uh, that you know people would just look in africa and say hey, this is this is a place where uh, terrorists could you know build up some plots to to attack the west uh, actually it hasn't proven that that genuine actually uh it, even if uh, jihadism is actually progressing, expanding fast in Africa, it's not been a jihadi movement that has been really uh, oriented towards uh, projection of, uh, of terror uh, in the West. Uh, There's been one or two cases uh, to, 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 to the maximum. Uh, it's really been uh, oriented towards Africa. And the lessons is that this jihadism is really deeply connected with grassroots movement and grassroots grievances. So you, you, you cannot really separate the struggle against terrorism from the more general uh, investment in uh, human security and political security. And this is probably the way around, the, 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 the way forward here to try not to, uh, to, to have this Counterterrorism only bias uh, on, for the sake of efficiency because it's not actually efficient is is creating a kind of a, a, a moral bias for with the governments that you that you're working with because they 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 can think that in the name of counterterrorism if you are afraid enough uh uh, of the cherries then they you you would accept uh, a number of things that are actually producing the 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 reasons why the cherries are winning on the ground and and this is so so you you probably need more of a global approach here a comprehensive approach of course and uh, and this includes and and this is probably something kind of new it it includes of course the strategic competition dimension uh because the, the, the West is no longer you know, the only uh, security provider uh, in town, uh, especially in Africa. Uh, there are others coming, and we, we're talking about uh, Russia, China, but uh, others uh, may, may come as well from either the Middle East or you know, elsewhere, even Latin America, elsewhere. And they probably won't have the same kind of conditions uh, that in the West we we had, and they may uh, actually uh, be more look more attractive to 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 local uh, African governments than us. So so we probably need to to straight up our strategic offer uh, in, in in Africa and uh, and look. Uh, at what what really worked and what didn't over the last uh, twenty years And security cooperations, uh, there are some things that really worked: uh, intelligence sharing and and of course targeting was uh, really improved. But it, it's probably not enough. And in terms of uh, policy engagement, uh, there are probably much more than what we can do.
0: Thank you, Eddie. Final question: What are your expectations uh, regarding uh, NATO's? Uh, upcoming summit and a bit's be its new strategic concept when it comes to this issue of fighting against terrorism and stabilizing its southern neighborhoods?
1: I think the main idea would be not to play terrorism versus interstate threats and strategic competition. The two unfortunately go well together and the Malian crisis showed that Uh, The the two threats can combine, uh, and they they can merge in in many different ways to to threaten security interests of uh, the alliance member states, and it, it might be tempting. As we are, of course, shocked by the situation in, uh, in in Ukraine and by the return of power competition and, and the threat of high intensity warfare, to say to totally drop out uh, the idea that terrorism is still a threat. Uh, of course, it is still a threat, and but it's not going to be either or. Is going to be both probably, uh, and, and and we still have to understand how uh, the new face of uh, terrorism, and I'm not only talking about jihadi terrorism, but uh, also wider forms of uh, non-state insecurity uh, issues, will merge with uh, strategic competition. That would be uh, probably a main takeaway of the the summit. If they just not forget all about what we've been doing for the last 20 years, uh, but understand that this is just going to mutate within the the new world that is one of uh, really rhythm with the strategy competition. Thank
0: you so much, Eddie, for this uh, fascinating uh, discussion. And it was a very good case for preserving this so-called 360-degree approach in NATO and not neglecting its southern neighbourhood. So thanks again for for joining joining us, Ellie. So that was my interview with Eli Tenenbaum. And now let's turn to Luis' interview with Dr. Robert Evan Ellis. So,
2: uh, you have done a significant amount of research into the activities and influence of Russia and China in Latin America. Can you perhaps give us a a brief overview of what these two countries are doing in the region and why uh, their activities should be of interest or even perhaps concern to the United States and and Europe?
3: Sure. The role and motives of China and Russia are very different. Uh, first of all, uh, China is uh, mostly pursuing economic objectives. Obviously, it has a very large profile in the region with about 160 billion dollars in sunk investment in recent years, uh, about 138 billion dollars in loans and uh, right now about 314 billion dollars in bilateral trade, which essentially makes it the number one trading partner of all countries uh, south of Costa Rica except where Brazil is is the number one. In general, it pursues a range of objectives from uh, uh, looking for secure access to, to things such as such as oil, uh, strategic minerals like like lithium, uh, e- even things like uh, fish meal, foodstuff, agricultural goods. And certainly uh, it pursues access uh, to um, a number of different uh, markets and goods and services, uh, such as in the construction sector, manufacturing, and digital and uh, particularly in infrastructure, not only um, in imports and transport infrastructure, but also electricity generation, especially. Um, green energy, electricity transmission, uh, telecom, uh, e- even financial and, and economic infrastructure. Uh, it plays a strong institutional role, uh, not only through things like the China-SELAC interaction, but also in uh, Latin America's own institutions like the Inter-American Development Bank. Um, and there is a military component with arms sales, as well as training and professional military education, as well as um, institutional visits uh, that really go both ways. But by contrast, uh, Russia is uh, on a, concentrated on a much more limited uh, series of, of countries, mostly anti US. Uh, obviously, military sales is a big component, although there's a little bit of, of space and, and atomic energy. Uh, there is uh, some petroleum engagement, especially in Venezuela, but also in places like Ecuador and, and Bolivia in Bolivia and the gas sector. Certainly uh, in the economic, uh, there is a Russian agricultural uh, investment, also sales of its nitrate-based fertilizers, which is particularly relevant in countries of the southern cone, such as Argentina and in Brazil. And of course, you have the high-profile political engagement with largely anti-U.S. actors, especially Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba. So why is this a concern? Uh, first of all, it's, it's a concern, um, you know, mostly because... Uh, China indirectly is, is changing the uh, economic structure of the region through its interaction that affects the U.S. through its geographic ties. Uh, it affects U.S. influence, uh, but also indirectly, uh, China is nurturing populist regimes in the region, giving them the resources that they need to consolidate their power. And and that changes the political composure of, of the region and its willingness to, to work with us. And even things like um, the struggle uh, diplomatically with Taiwan uh, as uh, with eight of the 14 uh, countries that remain in the world recognizing Taiwan to be found in largely Central America and uh, the Caribbean. That means that uh, as that war goes forward, and that takes uh, the number of Taiwan recognizing states towards zero, that moves us towards uh, you know, closer towards a, a potential war over Taiwan in in Asia. So there are reasons for for concern, but Russia and and uh, China have very different profiles in terms of how they contribute to that in the region.
2: Thank you. That's 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 very helpful. And, and a few weeks after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Biden administration officials uh, traveled to Venezuela, uh, which is a Russian partner in the region, as you were as you were mentioning, uh, to meet with President Nicolás Maduro. Can you? Can you perhaps expand a bit on the Russia-Venezuela relationship a a bit more and what it might mean for the United States and also perhaps uh, tell us uh, what you think was uh, the Biden administration's objective, what what the Biden administration was hoping to accomplish with, with that visit to Venezuela?
3: First of all, the Russia-Venezuela relationship is is relatively new in in terms of of, of Cold War time. I mean, compared to Nicaragua or or, or Cuba, it was relatively recent with the rise of of Hugo Chavez. Uh, And it's really been mostly about two things. Uh, Number one, uh, arms sales and political support uh, with about $11 billion of arms being purchased by Venezuela, funded by oil. Uh, Although a lot of uh, the big purchases ran out uh, as Venezuelan oil money ran out after about 2012. Uh, Also, of course, uh, Russia, uh, companies such as Rosneft, but also previously Gaz from TNK and others Luke oil have played a role in the Venezuelan petroleum sector uh, matter of fact uh, they've remained in, beside China the the major other other player there but um you know certainly the impact of the The relationship, the the Russia-Venezuela relationship also has been uh, to periodically uh, use the willingness of Venezuela to project uh, threats against the U.S. and the region. Uh, So you saw that in 2008 with the arrival of of first uh, T-160 nuclear-capable backfire bombers and later warships. Uh, They repeated that in 2013, um, again in 2019, and of course now with the visit uh, of Deputy uh, Prime Minister Yuri Borisov, who signed a military cooperation agreement as the uh, latest phase of, of the Ukraine crisis ramped up uh, essentially reminding uh, the world that Russia could continue at least in a limited way to project a threat uh, through Venezuela.
2: Thanks. So, so we're, we're trying to get a, a better sense of why all these factors uh, should matter for NATO as a whole, not, not just not just the United States. Uh, uh, so in that sense, uh, I'm wondering what role, if any, uh, could, could these countries uh, play in helping Russia, for instance, get around international sanctions uh, imposed on it because of its war uh, in, in Ukraine?
3: the reality is that, um, These countries can really do very little uh, to help Russia get around sanctions. Uh, Most of the countries uh, that are Russia's closest allies uh, who are willing to work with it, uh, such as uh, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba, are already heavily sanctioned by the United States. So although there are certain channels, especially um, through PDVSA, uh, the uh, options there are relatively limited. Uh, Other countries that have more robust economic relationships, like Argentina and Brazil, are more sensitive about engagement with the Western economy, and so probably more... uh, uh, reluctant to engage uh, on, on sanctions.
2: Thanks. Now, while, while I, I realize that it's it's unlikely that NATO would assign itself a formal role on any of these issues that you're, you're discussing that are more of a geoeconomic uh, nature, but can you perhaps say a bit about how you think the alliance should be thinking about about Latin America as a whole?
3: Well, as you point out, uh, there is very little uh, direct threat uh, to NATO in Europe uh, that comes from Latin America. There are uh, certainly uh, some uh, important points. Uh, Number one, of course, is that French Guyana, which uh, is found in the Northeast corner of, of South America, uh, is essentially a NATO border, which is shared with Brazil and, and Suriname. Uh, so, you know, that uh, comes into play uh, directly for NATO. Also, I think one of the big considerations is that uh, in time of a war, particularly a war that could break out with China, which would become global in its proportions, uh, NATO has to expect that the PRC uh, acting perhaps in conjunction with other allied partners, which could include Russia, uh, would likely act in the Western hemisphere, ways that would put the U.S. homeland at risk, U.S. supply lines at risk. And one certainly would have to think about the security of key choke points, such as the Panama Canal or the Straits of Magellan to the south. So to that end, um, you know, uh, of course, a uh, not clear whether uh, you know that would be primarily a U.S. responsibility with its South American allies or uh, other uh, NATO roles. Uh, but certainly, even if we go back to uh, World War II, you found that the question of, of shipping coming out of places like the Gulf of Peru with uh, Trinidad and Tobago and trying to get across the Atlantic, uh, you know, that was a question where Brazil got involved in something very much of concern to support for a, a European theater. Uh, of course, in, in the present term, we also have to recognize the importance of the drug flows uh, that come out of places like uh, Suriname uh, go, going from Paramaribo into the Netherlands and, and other places like the port of Rotterdam and, um, as well as, uh, uh, other considerations, such as the uh, money laundering and, uh, and terrorist networks that come out of uh, poorly governed spaces in the Americas. Of course, that's a bigger problem for the U.S. than it is uh, most of Europe, but it still does continue to be a, a problem in that regard. Thank you.
2: Perhaps one, one, one area where there's potential in terms of greater NATO engagement with rather than in Latin America uh, relates to partnerships, right? I mean, we know that NATO already has one uh, partner in the region, Colombia and in fact in, in 2021 uh NATO and Colombia launched an individually tailored partnership program for enhanced cooperation on things like interoperability military training and education and new areas like climate change and and security so uh two two questions here uh, first uh, uh, what's your take on 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 that partnership and that relationship uh, uh, uh and how it, it might evolve going forward and and second are there other potential partners for NATO in the region.
3: Well, certainly from a uh, NATO uh, military standpoint, uh, the partnership with Colombia is mostly about uh, benefiting the role that Colombia plays in security in, in the region, and obviously compatibility of, of weapon systems and other things of that sort, rather than incurring any type of, of mutual security relationship. There are others, uh, certainly, uh, such as Brazil, who have been discussed as uh, future partners in that regard, although uh, the trajectory of Brazil after this uh, October's elections raise questions of, of where that is is going. But probably the biggest Contribution in terms of a NATO role through partners like Colombia, who also help the U.S. with uh, what they call exporting security, has to do with um, current-term threats uh, such as uh, drugs and, and terrorism. So the ability of partners like like Colombia, you know, help some of those flows uh, that come largely out of, of Peru and and um, and. and Bolivia, but indirectly uh, sometimes from, from Colombia as well that are of concern to Europe, as well as, again, the, the terrorist threats of groups like, like Hezbollah that indirectly uh, affect Europe as well, as well as, frankly, uh, the migration that comes at least in limited quantities from uh, various states uh, in South America and in Latin America to the to, to the European countries.
2: Great. Thank you. I'm going to ask you now a question in, in Spanish uh, for our Spanish-speaking uh, audience. Eh, a ver, los, los aliados europeos eh, han empezado a tomarse eh, cada vez más en serio el, el tema de sus dependencias en, en el ámbito de los minerales críticos. Por ejemplo, en 2020 eh, la Unión Europea eh, pu- publica una estrategia para diversificar su aprovisionamiento de, de ciertas materias primas, como por ejemplo el litio, ¿no? que es algo que ya, que, ya, que ya ha mencionado usted antes. ¿no? De hecho, en un artículo reciente usted comentaba que China... Eh, tiene participaciones importantes en en las minas de litio en Argentina, Bolivia, México y Chile Eh, y y en concreto este último eh, eh, parece que provee a la Unión Europea de buena parte del litio que que Europa importa y que es es, por otro lado muy importante para los planes europeos de, de movilidad eléctrica entonces yo me pregunto ¿existe el riesgo de que China intente explotar este tipo de inversiones con fines geopolíticos? Y si eso es así, ¿qué significaría esto para para Europa y Estados Unidos y cómo podrían uh, responder al respecto?
3: creo que sí, absolutamente hay un riesgo y China puede y ya uh, hace en este momento también este tipo de explotación, de, de básicamente pon, poniendo um, en riesgo los cadenas de abastecimiento de empresas europeas y uh, en 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 carros y otros vehículos uh, eléctricos y otros componentes que dependen no solo en litio sino también en, en otros uh, metales estratégicos como por ejemplo uh, New Bio, lo que fuera de China se encuentra casi exclusivamente en, en Brasil por ejemplo pero no es solo um, el abastecimiento porque litio y otros materiales se encuentran en muchas partes del mundo sino es uh, la concentración y el procesamiento, pero por ejemplo cuando miramos um, donde se encuentra más litio en, en el mundo es en el triángulo de litio que el del sur de Bolivia, um, el norte de Chile y el norte de, de Argentina. Y en esos tres um, se encuentran empresas chinos en, en todo. Se encuentra, por ejemplo, uh, Gang Feng en Argentina en las grandes operaciones de litio um, en procesamiento, tanto como en, en solo um, sacar este material. Uh, en, en Chile, uh, aunque un poco más controlado, um, se encuentra esta empresa Tang Chi um, uh, con un interés de 25% en um, uh, Sociedad Química de, de Manera, esta operación más grande de litio ya. Y en Bolivia, aunque todavía no se ha desarrollado su um, litio hasta que pueda, y, uh, hay uh, presencia china en varios uh, proyectos pilotos ya con interés en hacer cosas más grandes. Y hasta en México, donde en el desierto de Sonora hay también uh, interés en um, in, in litio, um, el dueño de esta planta El uh, proyecto potencialmente más grande de litio, lo que es uh, uh, en Bacanora, es en los manos de, de Gangfeng. Feng. Aunque, interestamente, um, el gobierno de, de México recientemente ha declarado su intención de... Uh, de nacionalizar esto y esto pondrá a China en un poco de un conflicto con, um, con, con México uh, a, a, al respecto. Pero, por supuesto, um, el hecho de que, que China controla parte o todo de este abastecimiento le da palanca y sí ha utilizado esta palanca no solo contra el europeo, sino um, contra Japón y, y otros uh, estados en intentar uh, ganar todo el valor posible de estas cadenas de abastecimiento en estos momentos.
2: Muy bien, muchas gracias. Vamos con una última pregunta, eh, otra vez en inglés, ya pensando en la cumbre de, en la cumbre de Madrid. Uh, so if you if you had the opportunity to address European heads of state and government uh, at the NATO summit in Madrid at the end of this month, how would you make the case that they should engage more with Latin America as a matter of security and geopolitics and not just uh, uh, on the economic front?
3: Great question. Um, so first of all, uh, we are all globally in, interconnected, and so uh, what happens in, in Latin America affects Europe. We see that it affects Europe through ties of immigration. We see that it affects Europe through ties of, of drugs that flow out of Peru and Bolivia and other ungoverned spaces. Uh, when you have a global money laundering chains, when you have uh, you know global um, terrorist networks, again uh, you know that uh, that indirectly or directly uh, affects uh, Europe. We see also that uh, if there were a time of war, it would almost certainly be a war of global extent, and so. So the ability of of the United States to project force in support of of Europe or other theaters like like Asia um, would be vulnerable to disruptions that uh, would occur uh, either through Chinese forces directly, if it was a war against China, which we presume, or uh, through uh, surrogates such such as Russia. And so uh, at least in um, ensuring that those uh, were maintained open, Europe continues to have an interest. And certainly, again, reminding that uh, Europe has a a direct border through French Guyana in uh, with Suriname as well as uh, with with Brazil, where there also happens to be a very important strategic equatorial uh, launch facility. Uh, Europe is not without its interests in terms of also the how uh, Europe has a special role to play, and you see it being played today with its uh, stewardship role with the former Commonwealth states uh, from you know from Guyana uh, to to places like uh, Trinidad and Tobago, and certainly also uh, you know countries such as France and in, in, in Haiti, uh, countries such as Suriname, which in the counter-drug fight, and, uh, countries such as the Netherlands, which uh, have an important role actually physically present through the Kingdom of the Netherlands relationship with Aruba, Bon Montserrat, Curaçao, and of course, um, you know, previously with, with Suriname. So Europe has a stake to play. It has a special relationship. Um, the United States uh, cannot maintain that relationship alone. And what happens in Latin America affects uh, Europe as, as we see today.
2: Excellent. Thank you very much for that very comprehensive and, and balanced overview. Pleasure talking to you.
0: That was another episode of NATO's Road to Madrid. Thank you to Eddie and to Dr. Edis for joining us, and to our listeners for tuning in. Thank you also to the team at CSIS, especially to my colleague Colin Wall, our lead researcher and coordinator on the project, and to our editor, Ilana Nevins. If you like what you heard, please check out our page on the CSIS website, subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice, and leave us a reading and review. See you next time.